again for those who weren't with us last week, we're looking at the introduction to the book of Joshua, who's an Old Testament character. Um, the children of Israel have been incredible, have seen wonderful, amazing, literally mind-blowing things happen in their story as God has brought them out of Egypt and taken them through uh, the wilderness. They We saw last week, chickened out a bit and, uh, and it cost them... 40 years, um, but we see a new generation emerging with Joshua, and so they uh, receive a promise from the Lord in Joshua's life mission, and there's a promise that, as it were, is overarching over that mission, is, um, is that God will give him every place where he sets his foot, but the, there's a condition to that, he's got to go and set his foot there, he's got to be willing to go, and uh, and he is going to uh, have to contend for it. This is not just going to be a little stroll where he gets to put his feet. He's going to have to contend for that ground. But Joshua's life, we saw in those first few weeks, holds together God's presence and God's word. And it's not like God's presence and God's word are separate things. In fact, the more you're into one, the more you'll be drawn to the other. They're completely uh, synergistic. And, and so God promises him this victory and this inheritance for the people, the children of Israel, who had been without a land for 450 years. And, uh, but we've seen that the application to ourselves is that we don't get our inheritance by fighting against people. We have to contend for people. And there's work to be done. But we also have to be willing to go. If we don't step out, if we don't show courage, if we don't overcome our fear, the worries what people will say or think, or about the circumstances around us, we are simply not going to reach them. And so the, one of the challenges we face is, uh, like Israel, they, they've managed a bit of an escape from an old way of life, but were they really taking hold of this new land of promise? Um, and in one sense, we face a challenge, even at, at Explore. Do we stall? Do we get stuck? Do we just blend in? Or do we keep moving forward into the land of promise? So this brings us to Joshua chapter 1 and verse 10. Joshua has received this uh, you know, word from the Lord, commands from God. And then he, it says this, So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, Go through the camp and tell the people, Get your stuff ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half, there was a group called Gad, yes, a half tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you after he said, The Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, your livestock may stay in the land Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men ready for battle must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites. You're to help them until the Lord gives them rest. We're going to kind of focus on that. You're to help them until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, and until they too have possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you can go back, occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan towards the sunrise. So they answered Joshua, Whatever you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Gee, that's just like a leader's music to their ears, isn't it? 
Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Um, if you know how much they obeyed Moses, you'll know that was a bit of a double-edged promise. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them will be put to death. Oh dear. Only you be strong and courageous. Okay, so the backstory of this is found in Numbers chapter 32. Moses was still alive. Israel had been defeating the kings east of the Jordan. The promised land was viewed as west of the river Jordan. And, uh, and this land east of the Jordan was great for herders. And so the tribes of uh, Gad and Reuben and, and the half, tribe, half of the tribe of Manasseh, uh, they were, had especially large flocks and herds. And so they came to Moses and said essentially in verse 5 of Numbers 32, don't make us cross the Jordan. We actually prefer it here. Moses responds in a, a, like a preacher. In a, they, you know, they say one line. He answers with 14. Um, from verse 6 to 15, that's a terrible idea. You are essentially turning away from and rebelling against the Lord. And then Moses thinks about, wait a minute, that didn't need that sermon. And he makes them a counter offer. Um, and, and so then there's this negotiation that actually happens around understanding what the inheritance is. And essentially it comes down to this, that if we take possession of this land um, already conquered, and the condition is that when the time comes for others, we will go and fight for them. We've already received our inheritance, but when the time comes, we will rejoin the battle for the sake of the other tribes. And so Moses accepts the request, and in verse 20 to 24, Moses says to them, you'll do this um, if you will do this, if you'll arm yourselves before the Lord for battle, if you'll cross um, and who are armed over the Jordan before the Lord until he's driven out his enemies before him, then the land, uh, when the land is subdued before the Lord, you may return and be free from the obligation in this matter before the Lord and Israel. And this land will be your possession before the Lord. But if you fail to do this, you'll be sinning against the Lord. Why? Because the Lord wants an inheritance for his people. And you may be sure that your sin will find you out. That's where that quote comes from, by the way. But now, build cities for your women and children, pens for your flocks, but remember to do what you have promised. And then the rest of that chapter that followed was the arrangements they made. They, they conquer and consolidate the rule of that land east of the Jordan. They herd the, um, the animals. They build the pens. Um, they're essentially no longer nomadic. And they begin to rebuild the cities and the towns that they conquered. And then they even start building their own new cities. They really, even before Israel has moved in, they're taking possession. They, as it were, a promise of what could happen for the rest of the community around them. So here's the core of what I want to just pick up on this morning. You are to help them until the Lord also gives them also rest, as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land God has given them. So yeah, you've got two and a half tribes. They've already got their herds. They've already got their towns. They've already got their cities. They're already making their, their children at home, and, uh, and, and the rest of the nation are living nomadically, and they are able to start settling down. 
Now, why would the Lord say, you are sinning against me? And, 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 and be sure that your sin will find you out if you don't stick to this covenant you have made. Well, one of the things we don't really understand that well is that there's this collective solidarity uh, that is in, embedded in Scripture that is strange to us who have a Western worldview that is formed so strongly by individualism. And so we kind of think that because I want something, it's grounds enough for it to happen because I think it's good, because I want it to happen, because I'm happy with what's happening. Uh, that should be grounds enough. The world should just leave me alone um, and I can do this. And funny enough, God just doesn't think like that. Um, God is not okay just because you're okay. God is not okay just because I'm okay. God is the creator of the world and he holds in kind of an ecosystem of interconnectedness so much more than you. Now, he holds the whole world in his hands and, you know, you sang that as a kid and all the rest of it. And he holds you in his hands and he holds the tiny little baby in his hands and he holds the grampy and the granny in his hands and he, and he holds, you know, your mama and your papa in his hands. But you've got to remember that he holds them as part of the whole world and it is an interconnected ecosystem of a world. Now, now, this interconnectedness in Scripture has an ethical force. Now, you, you know, we hear the words better together or something like that, you know, indrach mach mach, or unity is strength, or whatever it is. But the old uh, motto of our country, kind of recognizing that there is a pragmatic value to interdependence. Things work better when they work for everyone. Now, that is not always pragmatically true, especially for these nations. It would have been much nicer for their men not to go off to war and potentially lose people in battle. It would have been much nicer just to look after themselves. When we argue that pragmatically that, you know, we must, we must stick together because it works better, you've got to recognize there's a limited value to that argument because there definitely are times when it's easier and more beneficial to just be blum and selfish. So we've got to confront some of the stuff that's going on there. Sometimes things work better for me when they don't work better for others. And so in Scripture, this communal force, this shared solidarity is not just pragmatism, it's ethics. It deals with what is fundamentally right and wrong. And so they cautioned, be sure your sin will find you out. Why? Because if you don't act in solidarity, you're actually violating something of the purpose of God for you and for your tribe. Now that sounds really heavy. There's a lovely story in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in which there are four men who suffer with leprosy and they're starving outside the city of Samaria. They had been living off the leftovers. They were, they were as it were, the guys who went through the rubbish bins uh, when everyone else had discarded their stuff. And so they lived on the margins of the city. But the city was now in a famine because of a siege and the Assyrian army was surrounding them. And so 
you know, the city was in dire straits, but these men were even worse off because now people were not discarding anything of value. And so they eventually decide to go to the enemy camp, which is besieging the city that supplies their need, to beg for food because they're dying anyway. And they go, if we stay and wait for food to be thrown over the wall, we're going to die. So why, and, and if we go there and they kill us, we die. So, you know, it sounds really great. It sounds like some of the news bulletins that we're hearing as people discuss the options before us. Um, and what they discover, though, is that when they get to the enemy's camp, the entire camp is empty and all their provisions have been left behind. So, like literally food for tens of thousands of people is just scattered all over the place because the, the, the Lord had caused the enemy to flee because they, th- they thought they heard the sound of a massive attack. And so they took off. And these four guys now walking through this place, they can't believe they could fall. I mean, they've been starving one moment. And they begin to go from tent to tent, and there's food, and there's drink, and they're thinking, this is absolutely amazing, they can stash money away, they are going to be stinking rich. And then notice this, what we are doing is not right. They turn to each other. Notice the ethical force that was assumed inside of the solidarity of the human condition. They... They go, they're not just saying, hey guys, maybe we should share. It's nice. It's kind. It's charitable. No, no, no. The solidarity of standing together in their human condition was something that had ethical force. And they go, well, if we don't do this, what we are doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it for ourselves. You see, it's not okay just for us to be okay. God isn't finished just because I am settled. Maybe we need to pause there. It's not okay just for me to be okay. And God isn't finished just because you are settled. I know that's unsettling. But it would be wrong not to face its implications. Not just inconvenient, but something deeply against the way you've been made and what will give you peace when you go to sleep at night and what will give you connection to the people around you and what will manifest the kind of life that one day you will look at and say, I loved living that life. So guys, I'm going to wrap up by just pointing to two areas of application that we're going to have to do, learn to do simultaneously. And they're like two oars in a rowing boat. If you only paddle one, you'll just go around in circles. But if you learn to pull both together, uh, you're going to make some progress. And the first oar that we see in the story is that of diversity. Um, you see, these guys have to learn to live for the sake of people who are not in their tribe. They've got their tribe. They've got their homes, they've got their stuff sorted out, and they're going to have to live to contend for the sake of, go to war for people who are not in their tribe. They're going to have to make sacrifices, be ready for battle, for the sake of those who are not in their tribe. And you know, one of the things that PBC has had a journey with in, in the last six or seven years um, is that God is bringing together a people of diversity. Now, he's been doing this for 2,000 years at least. 
but we're not very good at this and he's reminding us this is what is in his heart and in his agenda and in the diversity journey we have to work through things that are hard and challenging we have to face stories that will break your heart we have to work through repentance forgiveness putting wrongs right making restitution finding reconciliation and a whole bunch of other stuff but let me say this it is morally right it is the right thing to do it doesn't matter how hard the fight is it's the right thing to do you're not just here for your tribe I'm not just here for those who look like me and sound like me God has a heart for his people and as we move through the Old Testament we realize that in some ways Israel got this wrong because they were meant to be a light to the nations they were meant to be a blessing for the nations and certainly by the time Jesus comes we see a new identity and a new community and a new solidarity formed around those who claim Christ and all the old classifications and divisions of sex gender and, uh, and, and race and language and tribe are surpassed in the people that are born of Jesus. So turn to the person next to you and say, hey, our tribe is not closed. Our tribe is not closed. Now tell them, pick up the awe of diversity and paddle. <laughs> it means you're going to find people who are different to you. <clears throat> and you're going to go to war for their sake. And you're going to want to win them and you're going to want to see them share the full inheritance that God has for them. And one of the dangers we face in COVID is we're thinking it's okay if I'm okay. And we're going to have to recognize that there's a much bigger heart in the heart of God and a much bigger ambition in the purpose of God and a much greater vision on the, on, on the horizon of God. And He sees a people from every language and tribe and kindred and nation celebrating because your tribe is not closed. Your tribe is not closed. Your work is not done. The second is that that moves us into mission. I said diversity and we need to, we need to pull on that oar. And we need to do the work that it requires. But there is this sharing like those guys at 2 Samuel 7. This is a day of good news. We can't keep it to ourselves. You know, during this time, many of us have put in a lot of work to make sure that our homes are a place of safety, are a place of rest. And I think that's right. It wasn't wrong for Manasseh and Gad and, uh, and Reuben to build the pens, to, to rebuild the, the old cities, and to even build new ones. It wasn't wrong. They had the opportunity to do that. But it would have been wrong if they hadn't embarked on the mission together with the rest of God's people. So mission calls us to make sure that other people can find rest 
in God's purposes too. It is a danger that we can settle and give up on our mission simply because we have settled in our community. And how many churches have not got stuck in, you know, being a cozy community and it's my place and, you know, I paid my tithes and this is there for me. The vision that Jesus has for his church is that his church exists for the people who are not yet part of it because that's his heart. There's something so deeply, wonderfully selfless in the nature of Jesus himself. And we sang about it in that new song that I still don't know. Thank you, Mike. Um, but let me say this, guys. We have some of um, God's best place missionaries in Pinelands. God's best place missionaries for Thornton. God's best place missionaries for Panorama, for Rondevoy. For Mowbray, for Strandfontein, for Bonteville, for Kensington, for Maitland. Did I miss anything out? Goodwood and Parra. Any, any other takers? We, we have God's best placed missionaries. You see, one of the first things you're going to do. Sorry? Philippi. Yeah. And, and so, as we go... We seek to make sure that other people can enter the rest of God's promise. And remember this. That when we, when we don't keep good news to ourselves, when we share. And I know I'm picking up on one or two of the other elements. And mixing the story with 2 Samuel 7. But guess what happened when those people heard the good news? They had a feast. <laughs> they had so much food that they ate and couldn't eat no more and, and had to literally begin to store and pass on and share and share again the abundance of what had come in. You know, when, when we head out with the good news of God, we're inviting people to a feast. We're inviting them to an abundance. We're inviting them to eat until they couldn't possibly eat anymore and the feast often represented in the life of Jesus for example I sent it on the whatsapp Jesus turns water into wine for an ordinary wedding and he gives them what in today's language would be 800 bottles of wine like what 600 liters about I mean, that's one serious party, isn't it? Now, I know you're Baptists and you're nervous, but you've got to just look at the mindset of Jesus when he starts becoming, you know, often we think we're inviting Jesus in as the guest and before long, Jesus is the host. Think of what happened in Zacchaeus' home. He comes in as a guest and before long, he's the host and he's making a proclamation over the whole household. Today, salvation has come to this house. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If you sense something in the person and the call of Jesus, and it was true of you too, today salvation has come to this household. Today salvation has come to this extended family. Today salvation has come to this community. Why? Because you've begun to feast on the person of Jesus. And one of the key things that he has done that has made that feast possible is he has dealt with the very sin that would find us out. He is the one who offered himself so that that sin would not see us condemned. 
but that his offering would see us forgiven and welcome. Today, as this guy, Zacchaeus, messed up his life, he was rejected by his own community. He lived in a, a small community of outcasts. He was a collaborator, enriching himself at the expense of his own people by working with an op- uh, oppressive power. And Jesus could look at a life that had been messed up by bad decisions and say, today salvation has come to this house. And Jesus moves from being the guest to being the host. And you know, when he had died for our sins and been raised from the dead. He was walking with two people on the road and they were kept from recognizing them until he sat down for supper with them and he began to break bread. And they recognized he moved from being the guest to being the host because he was the one who was breaking bread. And as he is the host, their eyes are opened. They say, he didn't just die for us, he's living again. And that is the good news that we get to share. And that is the wonderful thing that we get to open our lives to. And when we're inviting people uh, to come to Jesus, we're inviting them to the banquet in which he's not the guest, but he becomes the host. And maybe today, here, here, and, and, and faith is, is not something you've thought about seriously for a long time. And maybe some of the believers around you have disappointed you, and I know that often I have so far fallen short of living truly selfish lives for the sake of those who do not yet know Jesus. You've probably got a valid point. You've probably got a valid concern that people don't match the measure of Jesus. And we would simply have to say to you as honestly as we could, guilty as charged. But just think of the logic. If we don't match the measure of Jesus, you've got an expectation of Jesus that you need to interrogate. You do think of him as amazing. You do think of him as outstanding. And you do think of him as deserving better followers than people like me. And I urge you to think again about the potential of what it would mean to let him become the host of the feast of your life.